Hi, it's Nimona. Did you miss me? I missed you. Just a reminder before we begin that I do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash firesideflock. If you want to help keep the episodes ad-free, it would be a great place to start. Um, also sponsored by Drink Poggers. Uh, I drink their Sleepy Time Acai Berry blend and it knocks me out. And they're not paying me to say that, I promise. So if you want to invest in some poggers, you can go to drinkpoggers.com slash nimgoat or use nimgoat at checkout for 10% off. That's code N-Y-M-G-O-A-T. Let's hop into today's episode. Chapter 16. The question whether Mr. Tyke should be appointed as salaried chaplain to the hospital was an exciting topic to the middle marchers and Lydgate heard it discussed in a way that threw much light on the power exercised in the town by Mr. Bulstrode. The banker was evidently a ruler, but there was an opposition party, and even among his supporters there were some who allowed it to be seen that their support was a compromise, and who frankly stated their impression that the general scheme of things, and especially the casualties of trade, required you to hold a candle to the devil. Mr. Bulstrode's power was not due simply to his being a country banker, who knew the financial secrets of most traders in the town and could touch the springs of their credit. It was fortified by a beneficence that was at once ready and severe, ready to confer obligations and severe in watching the result. He had gathered, as an industrious man always at his post, a chief share in administering the town charities, and his private charities were both minute and abundant. He would take a great deal of pains about apprenticing Teg, the shoemaker's son, and he would watch over Tag's church-going. He would defend Mrs. Stripe, the washerwoman, against Stubbs' unjust exaction on the score of her drying ground, and he would himself scrutinize a calumny against Mrs. Stripe. His private minor loans were numerous, but he would inquire strictly into the circumstances both before and after. In this way, a man gathers a domain in his neighbor's hope and fear, as well as gratitude and power, when once has got into that subtle region, propagates itself, spreading out of all proportion to its external means. It was a principle with Mr. Bulstrode to gain as much power as possible, that he might use it for the glory of God. He went through a great deal of spiritual conflict and inward argument in order to adjust his motives, and make clear to himself what God's glory required. But, as we have seen, his motives were not always rightly appreciated. There were many crass minds in Middlemarch whose reflective scales could only weigh things in the lump, and they had a strong suspicion that since Mr. Bulstrode could not enjoy life in their fashion, eating and drinking so little as he did, and worrying himself about everything, he must have a sort of vampire's feast in the sense of mastery. The subject of the chaplaincy came up at Mr. Vincey's table when Lydgate was dining there, and the family connection with Mr. Bulstrode did not, he observed, prevent some freedom of remark even on the part of the host himself, though his reasons against the proposed arrangement turned entirely on the subject of Mr. Tyke's sermons, though his reasons against the proposed arrangement turned entirely on his objection to Mr. Tyke's sermons, which were all doctrine, and his preference for Mr. Fairbrother, whose sermons were free from that taint. Mr. Vincey liked well enough the notion of the chaplain's having a salary, supposing it were given to Fairbrother, who was as good a little fellow as ever breathed, and the best preacher anywhere, and companionable too. "'What line shall you take, then?' said Mr. Chichely, the coroner, a great coursing comrade of Mr. Vincey's. "'Oh, 
I'm precious glad I'm not one of the directors now. I shall vote for referring the matter to the directors and the medical board together. I shall roll some of my responsibility on your shoulders, doctor, said Mr. Vincey, glancing first at Dr. Sprague, the senior physician of the town, and then at Lydgate, who sat opposite. You medical gentlemen must consult which sort of black drought you will prescribe, eh, Mr. Lydgate? I know little of either, said Lydgate, but in general appointments are apt to be made too much a question of personal liking. The fittest man for a particular post is not always the best fellow, or the most agreeable. Sometimes, if you wanted to get a reform, your only way would be to pension off the good fellows whom everybody is fond of and put them out of the question. Dr. Sprague, who was considered the physician of most weight, though Dr. Minchin was usually said to have more penetration, divested his large, heavy face of all expression and looked at his wine glass while Lydgate was speaking. Whatever was not problematical and suspected about this young man, for example, a certain showiness as to foreign ideas and a disposition to unsettle what had been settled and forgotten by his elders, was positively unwelcome to a physician whose standing had been fixed thirty years before by a treatise on meningitis, of which at least one copy marked own was bound in calf. For my part, I have some fellow feeling with Dr. Sprague. One's self-satisfaction is an untaxed kind of property, which it is very unpleasant to find deprecated. Lydgate's remark, however, did not meet the sense of the company. Mr. Vincey said that if he could have his way, he would not put disagreeable fellows anywhere. "'Hang your reforms,' said Mr. Chichely. "'There's no greater humbug in the world. You never hear of a reform, but it means some trick to put in new men.' I hope you're not one of the Lancet's men, Mr. Lydgate, wanting to take the coronership out of the hands of the legal profession. Your words appear to point that way. I disapprove of Wakeley, interposed Dr. Sprague. No man more. He is an ill-intentioned fellow who had sacrificed the respectability of the profession, which everybody knows depends on the London colleges, for the sake of getting some notoriety for himself. There are men who don't mind about being kicked blue if they can only get talked about. But Wakeley is right sometimes, the doctor added, judicially. I could mention one or two points in which Wakeley is in the right. Oh, well, said Mr. Chichely, I blame no man for standing up in favor of his own cloth, but coming to argument, I should like to know how a coroner is to judge of evidence if he has not had a legal training. In my opinion, said Lydgate, legal training only makes a man more incompetent in questions that require knowledge of another kind. People talk about evidence as if it could really be weighed in scales by a blind justice. No man can judge what is good evidence on any particular subject, unless he knows that subject well. A lawyer is no better than an old woman at a post-mortem examination. How is he to know the action of a poison? You might as well say that scanning verse will teach you to scan the potato crops. You are aware, I suppose, that it is not the coroner's business to conduct the post-mortem? but only to take the evidence of the medical witness, said Mr. Chichely with some scorn. Who is often almost as ignorant as the coroner himself, said Lydgate. Questions of medical jurisprudence ought not to be left to the chance of decent knowledge in a medical witness, and the coroner ought not to be a man who will believe that strychnine will destroy the coats of the stomach if an ignorant practitioner happens to tell him so. Lydgate had really lost sight of the fact that Mr. Chichely was His Majesty's coroner, and ended innocently with the question, Don't you agree with me, Dr. Sprague? 
to a certain extent, with regard to populous districts and in the metropolis, said the doctor, but I hope it will be long before this part of the country loses the services of my friend Chichely, even though it might get the best man in our profession to succeed him. I'm sure Vincy will agree with me. Yes, yes, give me a coroner who's a good coursing man, said Mr. Vincy jovially, and in my opinion, you're safest with a lawyer. Nobody can know everything. Most things are visitation of God. And as to poisoning, why? What you want to know is the law. Come, shall we join the ladies? Lydgate's private opinion was that Mr. Chichely might be the very coroner without bias as to the coats of the stomach, but he had not meant to be personal. This was one of the difficulties of moving in good Middlemarch society. It was dangerous to insist on knowledge as a qualification for any salaried office. Fred Vincy had called Lydgate a prig, and now Mr. Chichely was inclined to call him prick-eared, especially when, in the drawing-room, he seemed to be making himself eminently agreeable to Rosamond, whom he had easily monopolized in the tete-a-tete, since Mrs. Vincy herself sat at the tea-table. She resigned no domestic function to her daughter, and the matron's blooming, good-natured face, with the two volatile pink strings floating from her fine throat and her cheery manners to husband and children, was certainly among the great attractions of the Vincy house, attractions which made it all the easier to fall in love with the daughter. The tinge of unpretentious, inoffensive vulgarity in Mrs. Vincy gave more effect to Rosamond's refinement, which was beyond what Lydgate had expected. Certainly, small feet and perfectly turned shoulders aid the impression of refined manners, and the right thing said seems quite astonishingly right when it is accompanied with exquisite curves of lip and eyelid, and Rosamond could say the right thing, for she was clever with that sort of cleverness which catches every tone except the humorous. Happily, she never attempted to joke, and this, perhaps, was the most decisive mark of her cleverness. She and Lydgate readily got into conversation. He regretted that he had not heard her sing the other day at Stone Court. The only pleasure he allowed himself during the latter part of his stay in Paris was to go and hear music. "'You've studied music, probably?' said Rosamond. "'No. I know the notes of many birds, and I know many melodies by ear.' But the music that I don't know at all, and have no notion about, delights me, affects me. How stupid the world is that it does not make more use of such a pleasure within its reach. Yes, and you will find Middlemarch very tuneless. There are hardly any good musicians. I only know two gentlemen who sing at all well. I suppose it is the fashion to sing comic songs in a rhythmic way, leaving you to fancy the tune, very much as if it were tapped on a drum. Ah, "'You've heard Mr. Bowyer,' said Rosamond, with one of her rare smiles. "'But we are speaking very ill of our neighbors.' Lydgate was almost forgetting that he must carry on the conversation, and thinking how lovely this creature was, her garment seeming to be made out of the faintest blue sky, herself so immaculately blonde, that the petals of some gigantic flower had just opened and disclosed her. And yet with this infantine blondness showing so much ready, self-possessed grace— since he had had the memory of lore, Lydgate had lost all taste for large-eyed silence. The divine cow no longer attracted him, and Rosamond was her very opposite. But he recalled himself. "'You will let me hear some music tonight, I hope?' "'I will let you hear my attempts, if you like,' said Rosamond. "'Papa is sure to insist on my singing, but I shall tremble before you, who have heard the best singers in Paris. I have heard very little. I have only once been to London.' but our organist at St. Peter's is a good musician, 
and I go on studying with him. Tell me what you saw in London. Very little. A more naive girl would have said, oh, everything, but Rosamond knew better. A few of the ordinary sights, such as raw country girls, are always taken to. Do you call yourself a raw country girl? said Lydgate, looking at her with an involuntary emphasis of admiration, which made Rosamond blush with pleasure. But she remained simply serious, turned her long neck a little, and put up her hand to touch her wonderful hair plates. A habitual gesture, with her as pretty as any movements of a kitten's paw. Not that Rosamond was in the least like a kitten. She was a sylph, caught young and educated at Mrs. Lemon's. I assure you, my mind is raw, she said immediately. I pass at Middlemarch. I'm not afraid of talking to our old neighbors. But I'm really afraid of you. An accomplished woman almost always knows more than we men, though her knowledge is of a different sort. I'm sure you could teach me a thousand things, as an exquisite bird could teach a bear if there were any common language between them. Happily, there is a common language between women and men, and so the bears can get taught. Ah, uh, there is Fred beginning to strum. I must go and hinder him from jarring all your nerves, said Rosamond, moving to the other side of the room, where Fred, having opened the piano at his father's desire, that Rosamond might give them some music, was parenthetically performing Cherry Ripe with one hand. Able men who have passed their examinations will do these things sometimes, not less than the plucked Fred. Fred, pray defer your practicing till tomorrow. You will make Mr. Lydgate ill, said Rosamond. He has an ear. Fred laughed and went on with his tune to the end. Rosamond turned to Lydgate, smiling gently, and said, You perceive the bears will not always be taught. Now then, Rosie, said Fred, springing from the stool and twisting it upward for her with a hearty expectation of enjoyment. Some good rousing tunes first. Rosamond played admirably. Her master at Mrs. Lemon's school, close to a county town with a memorable history that had its relics in church and castle, was one of those excellent musicians here and there to be found in our provinces, worthy to compare with many a noted Kappelmeister in a country which offers more plentiful conditions of musical celebrity. Rosamond, with the executant's instinct, had seized his manner of playing and gave forth his large rendering of noble music with the precision of an echo. It was almost startling, heard for the first time. A hidden soul seemed to be flowing forth from Rosamond's fingers, and so indeed it was, since souls live on in perpetual echoes. To all fine expression there goes somewhere an originating activity, if it be only that of an interpreter. Lydgate was taken possession of, and began to believe in her as something exceptional. After all, he thought, one need not be surprised to find the rare conjunctions of nature under circumstances apparently unfavorable. Come where they may, they always depend on conditions that are not obvious. He sat looking at her, and did not rise to pay her any compliments. Leaving that to others, now that his admiration was deepened. Her singing was less remarkable, but also well-trained, and sweet to hear as a chime perfectly in tune. It is true, she sang, meet me by moonlight, and I've been roaming, for mortals must share the fashions of their time, and none but the ancients can be always classical. Rosamond could also sing Black-Eyed Susan with effect, or Hayden's Canzonettes, or Voy, Chez Zapate, or Bati Bati. She only wanted to know what her audience liked. Her father looked round at the company, delighting in their admiration. Her mother sat, like a Niobe before her troubles, with her youngest little girl on her lap. 
softly beating the child's hand up and down in time to the music. And Fred, notwithstanding his general skepticism about Rosie, listened to her music with perfect allegiance, wishing he could do the same thing on his flute. It was the pleasantest family party that Lydgate had seen since he came to Middlemarch. The Vincies had the readiness to enjoy, the rejection of all anxiety, and the belief in life as a merry lot, which made a house exceptional in most county towns at that time, when evangelicalism had cast a certain suspicion as of plague infection over the few amusements which survived in the provinces. At the Vincies, there was always whist, and the card table stood ready now, making some of the company secretly impatient of the music. Before it ceased, Mr. Fairbrother came in, a handsome, broad-chested, but otherwise small man, about forty, whose black was very threadbare. The brilliancy was all in his quick, gray eyes. He came like a pleasant change in the light, arresting little Louisa with fatherly nonsense as she was being led out of the room by Miss Morgan, greeting everybody with some special word and seeming to condense more talk into ten minutes than had been held all through the evening. He claimed from Lydgate the fulfillment of a promise to come and see him. I can't let you off, you know, because I have some beetles to show you. We collectors feel an interest in every new man till he has seen all we have to show him. But soon he swerved to the whist table, rubbing his hands and saying, Come now, let us be serious, Mr. Lydgate. Not play? Ah, you are too young and light for this kind of thing. Lydgate said to himself that the clergyman whose abilities were so painful to Mr. Bulstrode appeared to have found an agreeable resort in this certainly not erudite household. He could half understand it, the good humor, the good looks of elder and younger, and the provision for passing the time without any labor of intelligence might make the house beguiling to people who had no particular use for their odd hours. Everything looked blooming and joyous except Miss Morgan, who was brown, dull, and resigned, and altogether, as Mrs. Vincy often said, just the sort of person for a governess. Lydgate did not mean to pay many such visits himself. They were a wretched waste of the evenings, and now, when he had talked a little more to Rosamond, he meant to excuse himself and go. "'You will not like us at Middlemarch, I feel sure,' she said, when the whist players were settled. "'We are very stupid.' and you have been used to something quite different. I suppose all country towns are pretty much alike, said Lydgate, but I have noticed that one always believes one's own town to be more stupid than any other. I have made up my mind to take Middlemarch as it comes, and shall be much obliged if the town will take me in the same way. I have certainly found some charms in it which are greater than I had expected. You mean the rides towards Tipton and Lowick? "'Everyone is pleased with those,' said Rosamond, with simplicity. "'No, I mean something much nearer to me.' Rosamond rose and reached her netting, and then said, "'Do you care about dancing at all? "'I'm not quite sure whether clever men ever dance.' "'I would dance with you, if you would allow me.' "'Oh!' said Rosamond, with a slight, deprecatory laugh. "'I was only going to say that we sometimes have dancing.' "'and I wanted to know whether you would feel insulted "'if you were asked to come.' "'Not on the condition I mentioned.' "'After this chat, Lydgate thought he was going, "'but on moving towards the whist tables "'he got interested in watching Mr. Fairbrother's play, "'which was masterly, 
and also his face, which was a striking mixture of the shrewd and the mild. At ten o'clock supper was brought in, such were the customs of Middlemarch, and there was punch drinking, but Mr. Fairbrother had only a glass of water. He was winning, but there seemed to be no reason why the renewal of rubbers should end, and Lydgate at last took his leave. But as it was not eleven o'clock, he chose to walk in the brisk air towards the tower of St. Botolph's, Mr. Fairbrother's church, which stood out dark, square, and massive against the starlight. It was the oldest church in Middlemarch. The living, however, was but a vicarage worth barely four hundred a year. Lydgate had heard that, and he wondered now whether Mr. Fairbrother cared about the money he won at cards, thinking, he seems a very pleasant fellow, but Bulstrode may have his good reasons. Many things would be easier to Lydgate if it should turn out that Mr. Bulstrode was generally justifiable. What is his religious doctrine to me if he carries some good notions along with it? One must use such brains as are to be found. These were actually Lydgate's first meditations as he walked away from Mr. Vincey's, and on this ground I fear that many ladies will consider him hardly worthy of their attention. He thought of Rosamond and her music only in the second place, and though when her turn came he dwelt on the image of her for the rest of his walk, he felt no agitation and had no sense that any new current had set into his life. He could not marry yet. He wished not to marry for several years, and therefore he was not ready to entertain the notion of being in love with a girl whom he happened to admire. He did admire Rosamond exceedingly, but that madness which had once beset him about Lore was not, he thought, likely to recur in relation to any other woman. Certainly, if falling in love had been at all in question, it would have been quite safe with a creature like this Miss Vincy, with just the kind of intelligence one would desire in a woman, polished, refined, docile, lending itself to finish in all the delicacies of life, and enshrined in a body which expressed this with the force of demonstration that excluded the need for other evidence. Lydgate felt sure that if he ever married, his wife would have that feminine radiance, that distinctive womanhood which must be classed with flowers and music, that sort of beauty which by its very nature was virtuous, being moulded only for pure and delicate joys. But since he did not mean to marry for the next five years, his more pressing business was to look into Louis C.'s new book on fever, which was specially interested in, because he had known Louis in Paris, and had followed many anatomical demonstrations in order to ascertain the specific differences of typhus and typhoid. He went home and read far into the smallest hour, bringing a much more testing vision of details and relations into this pathological study than he had ever thought it necessary to apply to the complexities of love and marriage, these being subjects on which he felt himself amply informed by literature, and that traditional wisdom which is handed down in the genial conversation of men. Whereas fever had obscure conditions and gave him that delightful labor of the imagination, which is not mere arbitrariness, but the exercise of disciplined power, combining and constructing with the clearest eye for probabilities and the fullest obedience to knowledge, and then and yet more energetic alliance with impartial nature, standing aloof to invent tests by which to try its own work. Many men have been praised as vividly imaginative on the strength of their profuseness in indifferent drawing or cheap narration, reports of very poor talk going on in distant orbs, or portraits of Lucifer coming down on his bad errands as a large, ugly man with 
bat's wings and spurts of phosphorescence, or exaggerations of wantonness that seem to reflect life in a diseased dream. But these kinds of inspiration Lydgate regarded as rather vulgar and vinous compared with the imagination that reveals subtle actions inaccessible by any sort of lens, but tracked in that outer darkness through long pathways of necessary sequence by the inward light which is the last refinement of energy, capable of bathing even the ethereal atoms in its ideally illuminated space. He, for his part, had tossed away all cheap inventions where ignorance finds itself able and at ease. He was enamored of that arduous invention which is the very eye of research, provisionally framing its object and correcting it to more and more exactness of relation. He wanted to pierce the obscurity of those minute processes which prepare human misery and joy, those invisible thoroughfares which are the first lurking places of anguish, mania, and crime, that delicate poise and transition which determine the growth of happy or unhappy consciousness. As he threw down his book, stretched his legs towards the embers in the grate, and clasped his hands at the back of his head, in that agreeable afterglow of excitement when thought lapses from examination of a specific object into a suffusive sense of its connections with all the rest of our existence, seems, as it were, to throw itself on its back after vigorous swimming and float with the repose of unexhausted strength, Lydgate felt a triumphant delight in his studies, and something like pity for those less lucky men who were not of his profession. "'If I had not taken that turn when I was a lad,' he thought, "'I might have got into some stupid drought-horse work or other, and lived always in blinkers. I should never have been happy in any profession that did not call forth the highest intellectual strain, and yet keep me in good, warm contact with my neighbours. There is nothing like the medical profession for that.' One can have the exclusive scientific life that touches the distance and befriend the old fogies in the parish, too. It is rather harder for a clergyman. Fairbrother seems to be an anomaly. This last thought brought back the Vincies and all the pictures of the evening. They floated in his mind agreeably enough, and as he took up his bed candle, his lips were curled with that incipient smile which is apt to accompany agreeable recollections. He was an ardent fellow, but at present his ardour was absorbed in love of his work, and in the ambition of making his life recognised as a factor in the better life of mankind, like other heroes of science who had nothing but an obscure country practice to begin with. Poor Lydgate, or, shall I say, poor Rosamond, each lived in a world of which the other knew nothing. It had not occurred to Lydgate that he had been a subject of eager meditation to Rosamond, who had neither any reason for throwing her marriage into distant perspective, nor any pathological studies to divert her mind from that ruminating habit, that inward repetition of looks, words, and phrases, which makes a large part in the lives of most girls. He had not meant to look at her or speak to her with more than the inevitable amount of admiration and compliment which a man must give to a beautiful girl. Indeed, it seemed to him that his enjoyment of her music had remained almost silent, for he feared falling into the rudeness of telling her his great surprise at her possession of such accomplishment. But Rosamond had registered every look and word, and estimated them as the opening incidents of a preconceived romance, incidents which gather value from the foreseen development and climax. In Rosamond's romance, it was not necessary to imagine much about the inward life of the hero, or of his serious business in the world. Of course, he had a profession and was clever, as well as sufficiently handsome, but the piquant fact about Lydgate was his good birth, 
which distinguished him from all Middlemarch admirers, and presented marriage as a prospect of rising in rank, and getting a little nearer to that celestial condition on earth in which she would have nothing to do with vulgar people, and perhaps at last associate with relatives quite equal to the county people who looked down on the Middlemarchers. It was part of Rosamond's cleverness to discern very subtly the faintest aroma of rank, and once when she had seen the Miss Brooks accompanying their uncle at the county assizes, and seated among the aristocracy, she had envied them, notwithstanding their plain dress. If you think it incredible that to imagine Lydgate as a man of family could cause thrills of satisfaction which had anything to do with the sense that she was in love with him, I will ask you to use your power of comparison a little more effectively, and consider whether Redcloth and Epaulets have never had an influence of that sort. Our passions do not live apart in locked chambers, but, dressed in their small wardrobe of notions, bring their provisions to a common table and mess together, feeding out of the common store according to their appetite. Rosamond, in fact, was entirely occupied not exactly with Tertius Lydgate as he was in himself, but with his relation to her, and it was excusable in a girl who was accustomed to hear that all young men might, could, would be, or actually were in love with her, to believe at once that Lydgate could be no exception. His looks and words meant more to her than other men's, because she cared more for them. She thought of them diligently, and diligently attended to that perfection of appearance, behavior, sentiments, and all elegancies, which would find in Lydgate a more adequate admirer than she had yet been conscious of. For Rosamond, though she would never do anything that was disagreeable to her, was industrious, and now more than ever she was active in sketching her landscapes and market carts and portraits of friends, in practicing her music, and in being from morning till night her own standard of a perfect lady, having always an audience in her own consciousness, with sometimes the not unwelcome addition of a more variable external audience in the numerous visitors of the house. She found time also to read the best novels, and even the second best, and she knew much poetry by heart. Her favorite poem was Lala Rook. The best girl in the world, he will be a happy fellow who gets her, was the sentiment of the elderly gentleman who visited the Vincies, and the rejected young men thought of trying again, as is the fashion in country towns where the horizon is not thick with coming rivals. But Mrs. Plymdale thought that Rosamond had been educated to a ridiculous pitch, for what was the use of accomplishments which would all be laid aside as soon as she was married, while her aunt Bulstrode, who had a sisterly faithfulness towards her brother's family, had two sincere wishes for Rosamond, that she might show a more serious turn of mind, and that she might meet with a husband whose wealth corresponded to her habits. Chapter 17 The Reverend Camden Fairbrother whom Lydgate went to see the next evening, lived in an old parsonage, built of stone, venerable enough to match the church which it looked out upon. All the furniture, too, in the house was old, but with another grade of age, that of Mr. Fairbrother's father and grandfather. There were painted white chairs with gilding and wreaths on them, and some lingering red silk damask with slits in it. There were engraved portraits of Lord Chancellors and other celebrated lawyers of the last century, and there were old pier-glasses to reflect them, as well as the little satin-wood tables and the sofas resembling a prolongation of uneasy chairs, all standing in relief against the dark wainscot. This was the physiognomy of the drawing-room into which Lydgate was shown, and there were three ladies to receive him, 
who were also old-fashioned and of a faded but genuine respectability. Mrs. Fairbrother, the vicar's white-haired mother, befrilled and kerchiefed with dainty cleanliness, upright, quick-eyed, and still under seventy. Miss Noble, her sister, a tiny old lady of meeker aspect, with frills and kerchief decidedly more worn and mended, and Miss Winifred Fairbrother, the vicar's elder sister, well-looking like himself but nipped and subdued as single women are apt to be, who spend their lives in uninterrupted subjection to their elders. Lydgate had not expected to see so quaint a group. Knowing simply that Mr. Fairbrother was a bachelor, he had thought of being ushered into a snuggery, where the chief furniture would probably be books and collections of natural objects. The vicar himself seemed to wear rather a changed aspect, as most men do when acquaintances made elsewhere see them for the first time in their own homes. Some indeed showing like an actor of genial parts disadvantageously cast for the curmudgeon in a new piece. This was not the case with Mr. Fairbrother. He seemed a trifle milder and more silent, the chief talker being his mother, while he only put in a good-humored, moderating remark here and there. The old lady was evidently accustomed to tell her company what they ought to think, and to regard no subject as quite safe without her steering. She was afforded leisure for this function by having all her little wants attended to by Miss Winifred. Meanwhile, tiny Miss Noble carried on her arm a small basket, into which she diverted a bit of sugar, which she had first dropped in her saucer as if by mistake. Looking round furtively afterwards and reverting to her teacup with a small innocent noise as of a tiny, timid quadruped. Pray think no ill of Miss Noble. That basket held small savings from her more portable food, destined for the children of her poor friends among whom she trotted on fine mornings, fostering and petting all needy creatures, being so spontaneous a delight to her that she regarded it much as if it had been a pleasant vice that she was addicted to. Perhaps she was conscious of being tempted to steal from those who had much that she might give to those who had nothing, and carried in her conscience the guilt of that repressed desire. One must be poor to know the luxury of giving. Mrs. Fairbrother welcomed the guest with a lively formality and precision. She presently informed him that they were not often in want of medical aid in that house. She had brought up her children to wear flannel and not to overeat themselves, which last habit she considered the chief reason why people needed doctors. Lydgate pleaded for those whose fathers and mothers had overeaten themselves, but Mrs. Fairbrother held that view of things dangerous. Nature was more just than that. It would be easy for any felon to say that his ancestors ought to have been hanged instead of him. If those who had bad fathers and mothers were bad themselves, they were hanged for that. There was no need to go back on what you couldn't see. "'My mother is like old George the Third, said the vicar. "'She objects to metaphysics.' "'I object to what is wrong, Camden. "'I say, keep hold of a few plain truths "'and make everything square with them. "'When I was young, Mr. Lydgate, "'there never was any question about right and wrong. "'We knew our catechism, and that was enough. "'We learned our creed and our duty. "'Every respectable church person had the same opinions. "'But now, if you speak out of the prayer book itself,' You are liable to be contradicted. That makes rather a pleasant time of it for those who like to maintain their own point, said Lydgate. But my mother always gives way, said the vicar, slyly. No, no, Camden, you must not lead Mr. Lydgate into a mistake about me. I shall never show that disrespect to my parents, to give up what they taught me. Anyone may see what comes of turning. If you change once, 
Why not twenty times? A man might see good arguments for changing once and not see them for changing again, said Lydgate, amused with the decisive old lady. Excuse me there. If you go upon arguments, they are never wanting, when a man has no constancy of mind. My father never changed, and he preached plain moral sermons without arguments, and was a good man, few better. When you get me a good man made out of arguments, I will get you a good dinner with reading you the cookery book. That's my opinion, and I think anybody's stomach will bear me out. About the dinner, certainly, mother, said Mr. Fairbrother. It is the same thing, the dinner or the man. I am nearly seventy, Mr. Lydgate, and I go upon experience. I am not likely to follow new lights, though there are plenty of them here as elsewhere. I say, they came in with the mixed stuffs that will neither wash nor wear. It was not so in my youth. A churchman was a churchman, and a clergyman, you might be pretty sure, was a gentleman, if nothing else. But now he may be no better than a dissenter, and want to push aside my son on pretense of doctrine. But whoever may wish to push him aside, I am proud to say, Mr. Lydgate, that he will compare with any preacher in this kingdom, not to speak of this town, which is but a low standard to go by, at least to my thinking, for I was born and bred at Exeter." "'A mother is never partial,' said Mr. Fairbrother, smiling. "'What do you think Tyke's mother says about him?' "'Ah, oh, poor creature! What indeed!' said Mrs. Fairbrother, her sharpness blunted for the moment by her confidence in maternal judgments. "'She says the truth to herself. Depend upon it.' "'And what is the truth?' said Lydgate. "'I'm curious to know.' Oh, "'Nothing bad at all,' said Mr. Fairbrother. "'He's a zealous fellow.' Not very learned and not very wise, I think, because I don't agree with him. Why, Camden, said Miss Winifred, Griffin and his wife told me only today that Mr. Tyke said that they should have no more coals if they came to hear you preach. Mrs. Fairbrother laid down her knitting, which she had resumed after her small allowance of tea and toast, and looked at her son as if to say, You hear that? Miss Noble said, Oh, poor things, poor things in reference, probably, to the double loss of preaching and coal. But the vicar answered quietly, "'That is because they are not my parishioners, and I don't think my sermons are worth a load of coals to them.' "'Mr. Lydgate,' said Mrs. Fairbrother, who could not let this pass, "'you don't know my son. He always undervalues himself. I tell him he is undervaluing the God who made him, and made him a most excellent preacher.' "'This must be a hint for me to take Mr. Lydgate away to my study, mother,' said the vicar, laughing. "'I promise to show you my collection,' he added, turning to Lydgate. "'Shall we go?' All three ladies remonstrated. "'Mr. Lydgate ought not to be hurried away without being allowed to accept another cup of tea. Miss Winifred had abundance of good tea in the pot. Why was Camden in such haste to take a visitor to his den? There was nothing but pickled vermin and drawers full of blue bottles and moths.' with no carpet on the floor. Mr. Lydgate must excuse it. A game at cribbage would be far better. In short, it was plain that a vicar might be adored by his womankind as the king of men and preachers, and yet be held by them to stand in much need of their direction. Lydgate, with the usual shallowness of a young bachelor, wondered that Mr. Fairbrother had not taught them better. "'My mother is not used to my having visitors who can take any interest in my hobbies.' said the vicar, as he opened the door of his study, which was indeed as bare of luxuries for the body as the lady had implied, unless a short porcelain pipe and a tobacco box were to be accepted. 
men of your profession don't generally smoke, he said. Lydgate smiled and shook his head. Nor of mine, either, properly, I suppose. You'll hear that pipe alleged against me by Bullstrode and Company. They don't know how pleased the devil would be if I gave it up. I understand. You are of an excitable temper and want a sedative. I'm heavier and should get idle with it. I should rush into idleness and stagnate there with all my might. Then you mean to give it to all to your work. I am some ten or twelve years older than you and have come to a compromise. I feed a weakness or two, lest they should get clamorous. See, continued the vicar, opening several small drawers, I fancy I have made an exhaustive study of the entomology of this district. I am going on both with the fauna and flora, but I have at least done my insects well. We are singularly rich in orthoptera. I don't know whether— Ah, you've got hold of that glass jar. You were looking into that instead of my drawers. You don't really care about these things? Not by the side of this lovely encephalous monster. I've never had time to give myself much to natural history. I was early bitten with an interest in structure, and it is what lies most directly in my profession. I have no hobby besides. I have the sea to swim in there. Ah, you are a happy fellow, said Mr. Fairbrother, turning on his heel and beginning to fill his pipe. You don't know what it is to want spiritual tobacco. Bad emendations of old texts or small items about a variety of aphis brassicae, with the well-known signature of Philomicron for the Twaddler's Magazine, or a learned treatise on the entomology of the Pentateuch, including all the insects not mentioned, but probably met with by the Israelites in their passage through the desert, with a monograph on the ant, as treated by Solomon, showing the harmony of the book, of proverbs with the results of modern research. You don't mind my fumigating you? Lightgate was more surprised at the openness of this talk than at its implied meaning, that the vicar felt himself not altogether in the right vocation. The neat fitting up of drawers and shelves, and the bookcase filled with expensive illustrated books on natural history, made him think again of the winnings at cards and their destination. But he was beginning to wish that the very best construction of everything that Mr. Fairbrother did should be the true one. The vicar's frankness seemed not of the repulsive sort that comes from an uneasy consciousness seeking to forestall the judgment of others, but simply the relief of a desire to do with as little pretense as possible. Apparently he was not without a sense that his freedom of speech might seem premature, for he presently said, "'I've not yet told you that I have the advantage of you, Mr. Lydgate, and know you better than you know me. You remember Trolley, who shared your apartment at Paris for some time? I was a correspondent of his, and he told me a good deal about you. I was not quite sure when you first came that you were the same man. I was very glad when I found that you were. Only I don't forget that you have not had the like prologue about me.' Lydgate divined some delicacy of feeling here, but he did not half understand it. "'By the way,' he said, "'what has become of Trolley? I've quite lost sight of him. He was hot on the French social systems and talked of going to the backwoods to found a sort of Pythagorean community. Is he gone?' "'Not at all. He's practicing at a German bath and has married a rich patient.' "'Then my notions wear the best so far.' said Lydgate, with a short, scornful laugh. He would have it. The medical profession was an inevitable system of humbug. I said the fault was in the men, men who truckle to lies and folly. Instead of preaching against humbug outside the walls, it might be better to set up a disinfecting apparatus within. In short, I'm reporting my own conversation. You may be sure I had all the good sense on my side. 
Your scheme is a good deal more difficult to carry out than the Pythagorean community, though. You've not only got the old Adam in yourself against you, but you've got all those descendants of the original Adam who form the society around you. You see, I've paid 12 or 13 years more than you for my knowledge of difficulties. But, Mr. Fairbrother broke off a, mom a moment and then added, You were eyeing that glass vase again. Do you want to make an exchange? You shall not have it without a fair barter. I have some sea mice, fine specimens and spirits, and I will throw in Robert Brown's new thing, microscopic observations on the pollen of plants, if you don't happen to have it already. Why, seeing how you long for the monster, I might ask a higher price. Suppose I ask you to look through my drawers and agree with me about all my new species? The vicar, while he talked in this way, alternately moved about with the, his pipe in his mouth and returned to hang rather fondly over his drawers. That would be good discipline, you know, for a young doctor who has to please his patients in Middlemarch. You must learn to be bored, remember. However, you shall have the monster on your own terms. Don't you think men overrate the necessity for humoring everybody's nonsense till they get despised by the very few fools they humor? Said Lydgate, moving to Mr. Fairbrother's side and looking rather absently at the insects ranged in fine gradation with names subscribed in exquisite writing. The shortest way to make your value felt, so that people must put up with you whether you flatter them or not. With all my heart. But then you must be sure of having the value, and you must keep yourself independent. Very few men can do that. Either you slip out of service altogether and become good for nothing, or you wear the harness and draw a good deal where your yoke fellows pull you. But do look at these delicate orth orthoptera. Lydgate had, after all, to give some scrutiny to each drawer, Vicar laughing at himself and yet persisting in the exhibition. Apropos of what you say about wearing harness, Lydgate began, after they had sat down, I made my mind up some time ago to do with as little of it as possible. That was why I determined not to try anything in London, for a good many years at least. I didn't like what I saw when I was studying there. So much empty bigwigism and obstructive trickery. In the country, people have less pretension to knowledge and are less of companions, but for that reason they affect one's amour propos less. One makes less bad blood and can follows one and can follow one's own course more quietly. Yes, well, you've got a good start. You're in the right profession, the work you feel yourself most fit for. Some people miss that and repent too late, but you must not be too sure of keeping your independence. "'You mean of family ties?' said Lydgate, conceiving that these might press rather tightly on Mr. Fairbrother. "'Not altogether. Of course, they make many things more difficult. But a good wife, a good unworldly woman, may really help a man, and keep him more independent. There's a parishioner of mine, a fine fellow, but who would hardly have pulled through as he had done without his wife. Do you know the Garths? I think they were not Peacock's patients.' No, but there is a Miss Garth at Old Featherstone's, at Lowick. Their daughter, an excellent girl. She's very quiet. I've hardly noticed her. She's taken notice of you, though. Depend upon it. I don't understand, said Lydgate. He could hardly say, of course. Oh, she gauges everybody. I prepared her for confirmation. She's a favorite of mine. Mr. Fairbrother puffed a few moments in silence. Lydgate not caring to know more about the Garths. At last, the vicar laid down his pipe, stretched out his legs, and turned his bright eyes with a smile toward Lydgate, saying, 
but we middle-marchers are not so tame as you take us to be. We have our intrigues in our parties. I am a party man, for example, and Bulstrode is another. If you vote for me, you will offend Bulstrode. What is there against Bulstrode? said Lydgate emphatically. I did not say there was anything against him except that. If you vote against him, you will make him your enemy. I don't know that I need mind about that, said Lydgate rather proudly. But he seems to have good ideas about hospitals, and he spends large sums on useful public objects. He might help me a good deal in carrying out my ideas. As to his religious notions, why, as Voltaire said, incantations will destroy a flock of sheep if administered with a certain quantity of arsenic. I look for the man who will bring the arsenic, and don't mind about his incantations. Very good. But then you must not offend your arsenic man. You will not offend me, you know said Mr. Fairbrother, quite unaffectedly. I don't translate my own convenience into other people's duties. I'm opposed to Bulstrode in many ways. I don't like the set he belongs to. They are a narrow, ignorant set, and do more to make their neighbors uncomfortable than to make them better. Their system is a sort of worldly spiritual clickism. They really look on the rest of mankind as a doomed carcass, which is to nourish them for heaven. But, he added smilingly, I don't say that Bulstrode's new hospital is a bad thing, and his wanting to oust me from the old one. Why, if he thinks me a mischievous fellow, he's only returning a compliment. And I am not a model clergyman. Only a decent makeshift. Lydgate was not at all sure that the vicar maligned himself. A model clergyman, like a model doctor, ought to think his own profession the finest in the world and take all knowledge as mere nourishment to his moral pathology and therapeutics. He only said, What reason does Bulstrode give for superseding you? That I don't teach his opinions, which he calls spiritual religion, and that I have no time to spare. Both statements are true. But then I could make time, and I should be glad of the forty pounds. That is the plain fact of the case. But let us dismiss it. I really wanted to tell you that if you vote for your arsenic man, you were not to cut me in consequence. I can't spare you. You are a sort of circumnavigator come to settle among us, and will keep up my belief in the antipodes. Now, tell me all about them in Paris. Chapter 18 Some weeks passed after this conversation before the question of the chaplaincy gathered any practical import for Lydgate, and without telling himself the reason— he deferred the determination on which side he should give his vote. It would really have been a matter of total indifference to him. That is to say, he would have taken the more convenient side, and given his vote for the appointment of Tyke without any hesitation, if he had not cared personally for Mr. Fairbrother. But his liking for the vicar of St. Boltoff's grew with growing acquaintanceship that, entering into Lydgate's position as a newcomer who had his own professional objects to secure, Mr. Fairbrother should have taken pains rather to warn off than to obtain his interest, showed an unusual delicacy and generosity which Lydgate's nature was keenly alive to. It went along with other points of conduct in Mr. Fairbrother which were exceptionally fine, and made his character resemble those southern landscapes which seemed divided between natural grandeur and social slovenliness. Very few men could have been as filial and chivalrous as he was to the mother, aunt, and sister, whose dependence on him had in many ways shaped his life rather uneasily for himself. 
Few men who feel the pressure of small needs are so nobly resolute not to dress up their inevitably self-interested desires in a pretext of better motives. In these matters, he was conscious that his life would bear the closest scrutiny, and perhaps the consciousness encouraged a little defiance towards the critical strictness of persons whose celestial intimacies seemed not to improve their domestic manners, and whose lofty aims were not needed to account for their actions. Then his preaching was ingenious and pithy, like the preaching of the English church in its robust age, and his sermons were delivered without book. People outside his parish went to hear him, and since to fill the church was always the most difficult part of a clergyman's function, here was another ground for a careless sense of superiority. Besides, he was a likable man, sweet-tempered, ready-witted, frank, without grins of suppressed bitterness or other conversational flavors which make half of us an affliction to our friends. Lydgate liked him heartily and wished for his friendship. With this feeling uppermost, he continued to waive the question of the chaplaincy, and to persuade himself that it was not only no proper business of his, but likely enough never to vex him with the demand for his vote. Lydgate, at Mr. Bulstrode's request, was lying down plans for the internal arrangements of the new hospital, and the two were often in consultation. The banker was always presupposing that he could count in general on Lydgate as a coadjutor, but made no special recurrence to the coming decision between Tyke and Fairbrother. When the general board of the infirmary had met, however, and Lydgate had noticed that the question of the chaplaincy was thrown on a council of the directors and medical men to meet on the following Friday, he had a vexed sense that he must make up his mind on this trivial Middlemarch business. He could not help hearing within him the distinct declaration that Bulstrode was prime minister and that the Tyke affair was a question of office or no office, and he could not help an equally pronounced dislike to giving up the prospect of office, for his observations was constantly confirming Mr. Fairbrother's assurance that the banker would not overlook opposition. Confound their petty politics, was one of his thoughts for three mornings in the meditative process of shaving, when he had begun to feel that he must really hold a court of conscience on this matter. Certainly there were valid things to be said against the election of Mr. Fairbrother. He had too much on his hands already, especially considering how much time he spent on non-clerical occupations. Then again, it was a continually repeated shock, disturbing Lydgate's esteem, that the vicar should obviously play for the sake of money, liking the play indeed, but evidently liking some end which it served. Mr. Fairbrother contended on theory for the desirability of all games, and said that Englishman's wit was stagnant for want of them, but Lydgate felt certain that he would have played very much less but for the money. There was a billiard room at the Green Dragon, which some anxious mothers and wives regarded as the chief temptation in Middlemarch. The vicar was a first-rate billiard player, and though he did not frequent the Green Dragon, there were reports that he had sometimes been there in the daytime and had won money. And as to the chaplaincy, he did not pretend that he cared for it, except for the sake of the forty pounds. Lydgate was no Puritan, but he did not care for play, and winning money at it had always seemed a meanness to him. Besides, he had an ideal of life which made the subservience of conduct to the gaining of small sums thoroughly hateful to him. Hitherto, in his own life, his wants had been supplied without any trouble to himself— and his first impulse was always to be liberal with half-crowns as matters of no importance to a gentleman. It had never occurred to him to devise a plan for getting half-crowns. He had always known in a general way that he was not rich, but he had never felt poor, 
and he had had no power of imagining the part which the want of money plays in determining the actions of men. Money had never been a motive to him. Hence, he was not ready to frame excuses for this deliberate pursuit of small gains. It was altogether repulsive to him, and he never entered into any calculation of the ratio between the vicar's income and his more or less necessary expenditure. It was possible that he would not have made such a calculation in his own case. And now, when the question of voting had come, this repulsive fact told more strongly against Mr. Fairbrother than it had done before— one would know much better what to do if men's characters were more consistent, and especially if one's friends were invariably fit for any function they desired to undertake. Lydgate was convinced that, if there had been no valid objection to Mr. Fairbrother, he would have voted for him, whatever Bulstrode might have felt on the subject. He did not intend to be a vassal of Bulstrode's. On the other hand, there was Tyke, a man entirely given to his clerical office, who was simply curate at a chapel of ease in St. Peter's Parish, and had time for extra duty. Nobody had anything to say against Mr. Tyke, except that they could not bear him, and suspected him of cant. Really, from his point of view, Bulstrode was thoroughly justified. But whichever way Lydgate began to incline, there was something to make him wince, and being a proud man, he was a little exasperated at being obliged to wince. He did not like frustrating his own best purposes by getting on bad terms with Bulstrode. He did not like voting against Fairbrother, and helping to deprive him of function and salary, and the question occurred whether the additional forty pounds might not leave the vicar free from that ignoble care about winning at cards. Moreover, Lydgate did not like the consciousness that in voting for Tyke he should be voting on the side obviously convenient for himself. But would the end really be his own convenience? Other people would say so, and would allege that he was currying favor with Bulstrode for the sake of making himself important and getting on in the world. What then? He, for his own part, knew that if his personal prospects simply had been concerned, he would not have cared a rotten nut for the banker's friendship or enmity. What he really cared for was a medium for his work, a vehicle for his ideas, and after all, was he not bound to prefer the object of getting a good hospital— where he could demonstrate the specific distinctions of fever and test therapeutic results before anything else connected with his chaplaincy? For the first time, Lydgate was feeling the hampering thread-like pressure of small social conditions and their frustrating complexity. At the end of his inward debate, when he set out for the hospital, his hope was really in the chance that discussion might somehow give a new aspect to the question and make the scale dip so as to exclude the necessity for voting. I think he trusted a little also to the energy which is begotten by circumstances, some feeling rushing warmly and making resolve easy, while debate in cool blood had only made it more difficult. However it was, he did not distinctly say to himself on which side he would vote, and all the while he was inwardly resenting the subjection which had been forced upon him. It would have seemed beforehand like a ridiculous piece of bad logic that he, with his unmixed resolutions of independence and his select purposes— would find himself at the very outset in the grasp of petty alternatives, each of which was repugnant to him. In his students' chambers, he had prearranged his social action quite differently. Lydgate was late in setting out, but Dr. Sprague, the two other surgeons, and several of the directors had arrived early, Mr. Bulstrode, treasurer and chairman, being among those who were still absent. The conversation seemed to imply that the issue was problematical— and that a majority for Tyke was not so certain as had been generally supposed. 
The two physicians, for a wonder, turned out to be unanimous, or rather, though of different minds, they concurred in action. Dr. Sprague, the rugged and weighty, was, as everyone had foreseen, an adherent of Mr. Fairbrother. The doctor was more than suspected of having no religion, but somehow Middlemarch tolerated this deficiency in him as if he had been a Lord Chancellor. Indeed, it is probable that his professional weight was the more believed in, the world-old association of cleverness with the evil principle being still potent in the minds even of lady patients who had the strictest ideas of frilling and sentiment. It was perhaps this negation in the doctor which made his neighbors call him hard-headed and dry-witted, conditions of texture which were also held favorable to the storing of judgments connected with drugs. At all events, it is certain that if any medical man had come to Middlemarch with the reputation of having very definite religious views, of being given to prayer, and of otherwise showing an active piety, there would have been a general presumption against his medical skill. On this ground, it was, professionally speaking, fortunate for Dr. Minchin that his religious sympathies were of a general kind, and such as gave a distant medical sanction to all serious sentiment, whether of church or dissent, rather than any adhesion to particular tenets. If Mr. Bulstrode insisted, as he was apt to do, on the Lutheran doctrine of justification, as that by which a church must stand or fall, Dr. Minchin, in return, was quite sure that man was not a mere machine or a fortuitous conjunction of atoms. If Mrs. Wimple insisted on a particular providence in relation to her stomach complaint, Dr. Minchin, for his part, liked to keep the mental windows open and objected to fixed limits. If the Unitarian brewer jested about the Athanasian creed, Dr. Minchin quoted Pope's essay on man. He objected to the rather free style of anecdote in which Dr. Sprague indulged, preferring well-sanctioned quotations and liking refinement of all kinds. It was generally known that he had some kinship to a bishop and sometimes spent his holidays at the palace. Dr. Minchin was soft-handed, pale-complexioned, and of rounded outline, not to be distinguished from a mild clergyman in appearance. Whereas Dr. Sprague was superfluously tall, his trousers got creased at the knees, and showed an excess of boot at a time when straps seemed necessary to any dignity of bearing. You heard him go in and out and up and down, as if he had come to see after the roofing. In short, he had weight, and might be expected to grapple with the disease and throw it, while Dr. Minchin might be better able to detect it lurking and to circumvent it. They enjoyed about equally the mysterious privilege of medical reputation, and concealed with much etiquette their contempt for each other's skill. Regarding themselves as Middlemarch institutions, they were ready to combine against all innovators, and against non-professionals given to interference. On this ground, they were both in their hearts equally averse to Mr. Bulstrode, though Dr. Minchin had never been in open hostility with him, and never differed from him without elaborate explanation to Mrs. Bulstrode, who had found that Dr. Minchin alone understood her constitution. A layman who pried into the professional conduct of medical men and was always obtruding his reforms, though he was less directly embarrassing to the two physicians than to the surgeon apothecaries who attended paupers by contract, was nevertheless offensive to the professional nostril as such and Dr. Minchin shared fully in the new pique against Bulstrode, excited by his apparent determination to patronize Lydgate. The long-established practitioners, Mr. Wrench and Mr. Toller, were just now standing apart and having a friendly colloquy, in which they agreed that Lydgate was a jackanapes, just made to serve Bulstrode's purpose. 
the non-medical friends they had already concurred in praising the other young practitioner, who had come into the town on Mr. Peacock's retirement without further recommendation than his own merits and such argument for solid professional acquirement as might be gathered from his having apparently wasted no time on other branches of knowledge. It was clear that Lydgate, by not dispensing drugs, intended to cast imputations on his equals, and also to obscure the limit between his own rank as a general practitioner and that of the physicians, who, in the interest of the profession, felt bound to maintain its various grades, especially against a man who had not been to either of the English universities and enjoyed the absence of anatomical and bedside study there, but came with a libelous pretension to experience in Edinburgh and Paris, where observation might be abundant indeed, but hardly sound. Thus it happened that on this occasion Bulstrode became identified with Lydgate, and Lydgate with Tyke, and owing to this variety of interchangeable names for the chaplaincy question, diverse minds were enabled to form the same judgment concerning it. Dr. Sprague said at once bluntly to the group assembled when he entered, "'I go for fair, brother. A salary with all my heart. But why take it from the vicar? He has none too much.' has to insure his life, besides keeping house and doing a vicar's charities. Put forty pounds in his pocket and you'll do no harm. He's a good fellow, his fair brother, with as little of the person about him as will serve to carry orders. Ho, ho, doctor, said old Mr. Powderell, a retired ironmonger of some standing, his interjection being something between a laugh and a parliamentary disapproval. We must let you have your say, but... What would we have to consider is not anybody's income. It's the souls of the poor sick people. Here Mr. Powderell's voice and face had a sincere pathos in them. He's a real gospel preacher, is Mr. Tyke. I should vote against my conscience if I voted against Mr. Tyke. I should indeed. Mr. Tyke's opponents have not asked anyone to vote against his conscience, I believe, said Mr. Hackbutt, a rich tanner of fluent speech whose glittering spectacles and erect hair were turned with some severity towards innocent Mr. Powderell. But in my judgment, it behoves us, as directors, to consider whether we will regard it as our whole business to carry out propositions emanating from a single quarter. Will any member of the committee aver that he would have entertained the idea of displacing the gentleman who has always discharged the function of chaplain here, if it had not been suggested to him by parties whose disposition it is to regard every institution of this town as a machinery for carrying out their own views, I tax no man's motives. Let them lie between himself and a higher power. But I do say that there are influences at work here which are incompatible with genuine independence, and that a crawling servility is usually dictated by circumstances which gentlemen so conducting themselves could not afford, either morally or financially, to avow. I myself am a layman, but I have given no inconsiderable attention to the divisions in the church, and— Oh, damn the divisions, burst in Mr. Frank Hawley, lawyer and town clerk, who rarely presented himself at the board, but now looked in hurriedly, whip in hand. We have nothing to do with them here. Fairbrother has been doing the work, what there was, without pay, and if pay is to be given, it should be given to him. I call it a confounded job to take the thing away from Fairbrother. "'I think it will be as well for gentlemen not to give their remarks a personal bearing,' said Mr. Plimdale. "'I shall vote for the appointment of Mr. Tyke, but I should not have known, if Mr. Hackbud hadn't hinted it, that I was a servile crawler.' "'I disclaim any personalities. I expressly said, if I may be allowed to repeat, or even to conclude what I was about to say—' "'Ah, here's Minchin,' said Mr. Frank Hawley, at which everybody turned away from Mr. Hackbutt, leaving him to feel the uselessness of superior gifts in Middlemarch.' "'Come, doctor, I must have you on the right side, eh?' "'I hope so,' said Dr. Minchin, nodding and shaking hands here and there, 
at whatever cost to my feelings. If there's any feeling here, it should be feeling for the man who was turned out, I think, said Mr. Frank Hawley. I confess I have feelings on the other side also. I have a divided esteem, said Dr. Minchin, rubbing his hands. I consider Mr. Tyke an exemplary man, none more so, and I believe him to be proposed from unimpeachable motives. I, for my part, wish that I could give him my vote, but I am constrained to take a view of the case which gives the preponderance to Mr. Fairbrother's claims. He is an amiable man, an able preacher, and has been longer among us. Old Mr. Patterell looked on, sad and silent. Mr. Plimdale settled his cravat uneasily. "'You don't set up Fairbrother as a pattern of what a clergyman ought to be, I hope,' said Mr. Larcher, the eminent carrier, who had just come in. "'I have no ill will towards him, but I think we owe something to the public, not to speak of anything higher, in these appointments. In my opinion, Fairbrother is too lax for a clergyman. I don't wish to bring up particulars against him, but he will make a little attendance here go as far as he can.' "'And a devilish deal better than too much,' said Mr. Hawley, whose bad language was notorious in that part of the county. "'Sick people can't bear so much praying and preaching, and that methodistical sort of religion is bad for the spirits, bad for the inside, eh?' he added, turning quickly round to the four medical men who were assembled. But any answer was dispensed with by the entrance of three gentlemen, with whom there were greetings more or less cordial. There, These were the Reverend Edward... Thesiger, rector of St. Peter's, Mr. Bulstrode, and our friend Mr. Brooke of Tipton, who had lately allowed himself to be put on the board of directors in his turn, but, would, but had never before attended, his attendance now being due to Mr. Bulstrode's exertions. Lydgate was the only person still expected. Everyone now sat down, Mr. Bulstrode presiding, pale and self-restrained as usual. Mr. Thesiger, a moderate evangelical, wished for the appointment of his friend Mr. Tyke, a zealous able man who, officiating at a chapel of ease, had not a cure of souls too extensive to leave him ample time for the new duty. It was desirable that chaplaincies of this kind should be entered on with the fervent intention. They were peculiar opportunities for spiritual influence, and while it was good that a salary should be allotted, there was the more need for scrupulous watching lest the office should be perverted into a mere question of salary— Mr. Thesiger's manner had so much quiet propriety that objectors could only simmer in silence. Mr. Brooke believed that everybody meant well in the matter. He had not himself attended to the affairs of the infirmary, though he had a strong interest in whatever was for the benefit of Middlemarch, and was most happy to meet the gentleman present on any public question. "'Any public question, you know,' Mr. Brooke repeated with his nod of perfect understanding. "'I am a good deal occupied as a magistrate, and in the collection of documentary evidence, but I regard my time as being at the disposal of the public, and, in short, my friends have convinced me that a chaplain with a salary—salary, you know—is a very good thing, and I am happy to be able to come here and vote for the appointment of Mr. Tyke, who, I understand, is an unexceptionable man, apostolic, and eloquent—' and everything of that kind, and I am the last man to withhold my vote, under the circumstances, you know. "'Seems to me that you've been crammed with one side of the question, Mr. Brooke,' said Mr. Frank Hawley, who was afraid of nobody, and was a Tory suspicious of electioneering intentions. "'You don't seem to know that one of the worthiest we have has been doing duty as chaplain here for years without pay, and Mr. Tyke has proposed to supersede him.' "'Excuse me, Mr. Hawley,' said Mr. Bulstrode, "'Mr. Brooke has been fully informed of Mr. Fairbrother's character and position.' "'By his enemies?' flashed out Mr. Hawley. "'I trust there is no personal hostility concerned here,' said Mr. Thesiger. 
I'll swear there is, though, retorted Mr. Hawley. Gentlemen, said Mr. Bulstrode in a subdued tone, the merits of the question may be very briefly stated, and if any one present doubts that every gentleman who was about to give his vote has not been fully informed, I can now recapitulate the considerations that should weigh on either side. I don't see the good of that, said Mr. Hawley. I suppose we all know whom we mean to vote for. Any man who wants to do justice does not wait till the last minute to hear both sides of the question. I have no time to lose, and I propose that the matter be put to the vote at once. A brief but still hot discussion followed before each person wrote Tyke or Fairbrother on a piece of paper and slipped it into a glass tumbler, and in the meantime Mr. Bulstrode saw Lydgate enter. "'I perceive that the votes are equally divided at present,' said Mr. Bulstrode in a clear, biting voice. Then, looking up at Lydgate, there was a casting vote still to be given. "'It is yours, Mr. Lydgate. Will you be good enough to write?' "'The thing is settled now,' said Mr. Wrench, rising. "'We all know how Mr. Lydgate will vote.' "'You seem to speak with some peculiar meaning, sir,' said Lydgate rather defiantly, and keeping his pencil suspended. "'I merely mean that you're expected to vote with Mr. Bulstrode. Do you regard that meaning as offensive?' "'It may be offensive to others, but I shall not desist from voting with him on that account.' Lydgate immediately wrote down Tyke. So the Reverend Walter Tyke became chaplain to the infirmary, and Lydgate continued to work with Mr. Bulstrode. He was rather uncertain whether Tyke were not the more suitable candidate, and yet his consciousness told him that if he had been quite free from indirect bias, he should have voted for Mr. Fairbrother. The affair of the chaplaincy remained a sore point in his memory, as a case in which this petty medium of Middlemarch had been too strong for him. How could a man be satisfied with the decision between such alternatives and under such circumstances? No more than he can be satisfied with his hat, which he has chosen from among such shapes as the resources of the age offer him, wearing it at best with a resignation which is chiefly supported by comparison. But Mr. Fairbrother met him with the same friendliness as before. The character of the publican and sinner is not always practically incompatible with that of the modern Pharisee, for the majority of us scarcely see more distinctly the faultiness of our own conduct than the faultiness of our own arguments, or the dullness of our own jokes. But the vicar of St. Botolph's had certainly escaped the slightest tincture of the Pharisee, and by dint of admitting to himself that he was too much as other men were, he had become remarkably unlike them in this, that he could excuse others for thinking slightly of him, and could judge impartially of their conduct even when it told against him. "'The world has been too strong for me, I know,' he said one day to Lydgate. "'But then I am not a mighty man. I shall never be a man of renown. The choice of Hercules is a pretty fable, but Prodicus makes it easy work for the hero, as if the first resolves were enough. Another story says that he came to hold the distaff, and at last wore the Nessus shirt. I suppose one good resolve might keep a man right if everybody else's resolve helped him. The vicar's talk was not always inspiriting.' He had escaped being a Pharisee, but he had not escaped that low estimate of possibilities, which we rather hastily arrive at as an inference from our own failure. Lydgate thought that there was a pitiable infirmity of will in Mr. Fairbrother. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, my dearest flock, uh, please expect an uptick in quality next week as I have invested in a new microphone which should be arriving shortly, and it should improve things just a little bit. I, I just don't find that the quality of the Blue Yeti is 
what I'm looking for exactly. Maybe I'm just not using it the right way. I mean, I can only shove my mouth against a microphone so much. Um, so expect that. That's coming. I have some auditions coming up that I'm pretty excited about. I can't disclose anything at the moment, but I'm hoping I land them. That would be really good, both for me and for the podcast in general, because it'll give me some pocket money to invest in better equipment. Speaking of pocket money, if you want to contribute your tithe to the cult, you can go to patreon.com slash firesideflock. I have three tiers available, um, and it helps go a long way. It helps with my caffeine addiction, and it helps me not have to dig into my own pockets in order to get better equipment for the show. So that is everything I think that I have to say this week. I appreciate you guys giving me a little bit of a break last week. I hope you enjoyed the short stories. I might do that in the interim between stories. So we're not just hopping from one big plot line to another. I might do a couple one-offs here and there to act as a palate cleanser for content. Uh, yeah, that's everything. If you're not the doctor slams for Ezra Shepherd, I will make it my duty to see you to shelter. Until next we meet, bye.